Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest will be Justin Waldera. Justin traveled abroad to South America. He's going to come on and give us the rundown about some cultural differences and a little bit of the partying he did and just kind of go through his experience in South America. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin Waldera on The Surth Show. Seth, how you doing? Good. How are you, man? Uh, not too bad. Just, you know, woke up a little earlier than normal this morning. Already got a coffee in. Now ready to talk a little travel with my one of my best friends. I'm pretty stoked. It's early for you. Um, well, you see, it was an off day today. So an off day, I'm getting up around 12, 1 o'clock because I'm waking up around 7, 7.30, four or five other days of the week. So I treat myself my days off. I also only average about six hours of sleep when I have to work. So on my off days, I'm in bed most of the day. Man, you need to, you need to get more sleep. I do. I, I really do. No, it's a bad habit. You know my you know my roommates. We all lived together last year. We tend to stay up a little late talking, hanging out. Yeah, that's uh that's an interesting group of guys. It is. No, we um we have a lot of fun. We we get in some trouble here and there though. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? Hey, you're right on that one. All right, Justin. A couple summers ago, you traveled abroad. Where was your first destination on this on this trip? So my first destination was Cusco, Peru, where I studied abroad um, for six weeks at the University of San Ignacio de Loyola. Okay, and study, like obviously. Yes. So I went to Peru with about four classes left in my major um, when I was at Winona State. Um, So I really only needed to take an advanced grammar class for Spanish. And then I took a class on the history and culture of the Inca that lived, you know, that was in Cusco, the capital, um, that still has a very, very strong influence of the Inca culture. How old of a town is Cusco? Oh, man. Cusco is hundreds of years old. I mean, we're talking, it was the capital of Peru from, oh, man, was it even before? I want to say around 1200 is when it was full on established and known as the capital of the Incan Empire. It might have been earlier. I'm sorry, what was that? But Cusco has a huge market, doesn't it? Cusco, yes. So, um, in general, um, the city has multiple markets, but there's one in particular called San Pedro Market, which is the biggest open market in all of Peru. It's gigantic, and uh, it's in like this. It kind of looks like what's like a tin shed is what we would call it here, but it's actually a pretty remarkable structure. It's just you never see it empty, so it's hard to appreciate how great it is. But to give you an example of how great the mind designed it was, um, the same person that designed the Eiffel Tower designed the structure for San Pedro Market in Cusco, Peru. Wow. But you said it just looks like a tin shed? Yes, it does. Because it's, it's got a tin roof on it, and it's got, like, you know, just a normal fence that surrounds it so people can't climb up in at night. So how many people were you with in the study abroad program? From my university... We had 
17 students from mostly the United States, but we also had two from Ukraine and two from Canada. Okay. That's a decent-sized group. It is, yeah. I mean, there were only, I believe, six different classes being offered to the 17 of us because the entire university was ours, per se. Um, it was our time to be there. We all we had six weeks to take our classes, work with each of the instructors, and get a feel for the city. Was it hard communicating while you were in South America? So I... Um, I went to South America with a very high level of fluency, um, which was very nice. But I still went there stumbling over my words because I was so nervous that I could hardly get a word out. So I didn't spend a ton of time outside of Cusco other than when I was hiking and um, doing small day trips. But you could tell that It was a really weird experience that I couldn't speak Spanish for the first day or two just because I was in a brand new country, culture shocked and um, trying to figure out what was going on. But after I got my feet on the ground, it was perfectly fine. I mean, Peruvians have a super clear dialect of Spanish that I had no problems. I was going to ask about the dialects. Did it vary from area to area a lot? the more like indigenous areas of Cusco had a thicker uh, dialect because they spoke the native language, uh, Quechua of the Incan empire. And they also spoke Spanish as their second language, but they would call it Quechuanol because they, they mixed it. It's like Spanglish here. Okay. They would, they would mix words. They use a certain word in Quechua and then go to Spanish or vice versa. Um, So it was very hard to speak with those people. Most of the taxi drivers were um, like Quechua speaking natives and Spanish was their second language. So I would talk to them and they would actually try to teach me a little bit of Quechua while I was riding to go to class or if I wanted to go to the clubs or just go to a restaurant. I would, you know, just talk to them, see how their day was going. Then I would ask them to teach me a little bit of Quechua. Do you say go to the clubs? Yes, sir. What was it like clubbing in Peru? So Peruvian clubbing is different. And I would, I'm going to have to say that it must be different than Lima because in Cusco, there aren't any like, you know, six story clubs with like a penthouse club, like you see on TV or like what you get when you imagine like big clubs in South America. The biggest club I went to was called Mushrooms in City Square. Mushrooms? Uh, Yes, it's called Mushrooms. (laughs) Yep. And oh man, let's see. It was two stories. And every single night from like 7 p.m. until 11, it was salsa time. And then they had free salsa lessons. So you could just show up and learn how to salsa dance. Oh, that'd be fun. It was a lot of fun. I went a few times. Um, Admittedly, I wish I went a little more because I just had the hardest time in the world trying to get my gringo feet to move the right way. But clubbing in Cusco is a little different because they still Peru doesn't have the influence that say Colombia does of a certain kind of music called reggaeton, which is synonymous with clubbing and discotecas and like it was not not bad at all. I mean, the drinks were good. 
it was more so like a bar that we would see kind of like here in Mankato or like the cities instead of like an LA like type scene that was what I had in Columbia. And you stayed with a host family, didn't you? I did, yes. So my host family lived in, it's hard to call it a house, but more so a complex because it was like several floors of different families and they were on the third floor. But my roommate Wesley and I lived in the basement. We call uh, we called it the cave because you would walk in through the garage and right to the right, there was a little cubby with two rooms and a bathroom and like, they were pretty nice. But it kind of felt like we were in a cave when we walked in because we walked in straight into this garage that you wouldn't normally see that kind of garage in the United States. And you're like, oh, interesting. So are you still in contact with the host family? I am, yes. I actually talked to my host mom, Tanya, once a week normally. I actually haven't talked to her this week yet, but I talked to her last about a week and a half ago. Is Tanya a pretty common name there? (laughs) Honestly, I have never met someone in South America with the name Tanya. I was going to say, I was a little surprised by that. Nope, but it is spelled a little more Latin American. It's T-A-N-I-A instead of like a traditional kind of more so we would see here, T-A-N-Y-A. Sure. Tanya is a wonderful woman. I mean, the the things she can do with food. She's a good cook? Oh, yeah. I mean... My favorite Peruvian dish is a super, like, traditional Cuscanian food called ají de gallina. And it's, like, this yellow chili that they have there. And they, you know, they make it into a paste. And then they mix shredded chicken and three kinds of Andean potatoes in with it. And then they'll serve it over rice with, uh, like, a hard-boiled egg on top, cut in half. And I think I had that meal a good five or six times at restaurants throughout my time, but so, no one could ever touch Tanya's ahi de gallina. So it's a chili served over a rice? Yeah, that's the best way I could put it. It's... I can't think of an American food that we eat that's any sort of similar, but they, she she would take yellow chili peppers and then turn it into like somewhat of like a stew but thicker and then mix her ingredients in so it became more of a chili like food and then she we would serve it over rice interesting it's really hard to get a grasp on foreign foreign foods when you've never left the country so i enjoy hearing about other people's experience with it yeah the first time i saw it i was kind of sketched out because when i say yellow i mean this entire dish is like dandelion yellow and i had never seen a food like that that was not supposed to be sweet how was the other food in peru cusco's got a really bad reputation for having bland food but i never heard that i mean i I, okay i heard that but i never thought that when i was there i mean i would go to different restaurants with my friends or i would eat with my host family or we would do like somewhat like a family dinner with um the advisors from the program And every time I was like, wow, this is not what I expected. Like every time I talk to um, some of my friends that live in Colombia or like I have a friend that lives down in Argentina and they all said, oh, yeah, in Cusco, their food is bland. Um, But it was never like that. Our food might be fairly bland. Yeah, I think that is a a very fair assessment. And obviously, I mean, I've never been to Argentina where my other friend was talking, but I've been to Colombia and the flavors they get are very very different and 
all of my friends from Columbia have studied in Minnesota, in Winona with me. That's where I met them. So that's probably where they're coming from because they lived in Minnesota with me. They lived in Winona, went to high school. You know, they ate the kind of the same traditional like Midwestern foods that I did. Is the food spicy? <laughs> no, that's a fun one. Peruvians hate spice if you're in Cusco. Really? Yes. Cuscanian people do not like spice, but you go, what is it, like th- like two and a half hours north by plane to Lima, and that's some of the spiciest food you're going to get in Peru. Did you ever go to Lima? I was only in Lima for three hours for a layover when I went to Peru. Okay. But I have a fun story about Lima. So I left, I left MSP at about five in the morning on a Wednesday. And I was traveling until 7 in the morning the next day. So I landed in Lima at 3.30 in the morning that, on that Thursday morning. And I, I cannot sleep on planes. That's one thing about me that I wish I could change. I cannot sleep on a plane. So I'm rocking almost no sleep. I got up at 3 the, the morning prior to get ready for my embark. And I could not get any sleep on the flight. So I'm sleep-deprived. And I was zoned out on the plane, not really paying attention on my flight. And I remember landing in Lima. The part of Lima that ha- that contains the airport is not the best part of Lima right now. Oh. Callao, sorry. Pilsen is a brand that they have there. But Callao is the neighborhood Okay. where the airport is. And Callao right now is like the neighborhood that you should not be in in Lima. So, like, I was looking out the window, looking at a very, not exactly run down, but a not great looking neighborhood. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is real. Like, I'm alone. I'm however many thousand miles away from home. I know nobody. And this is just me. And I'm in the worst neighborhood in all of Peru right now. And I'm sitting here like, okay, how do I do this? And that's when culture shock hit me. I had a burst of anxiety. I'm freaking out. I can't do this. I need to figure out how to get off this plane and onto a different one back to Minnesota. Walk off the plane. Flight attendant looks at me and goes, have a nice day, sir, in Spanish. And then, and then I just, you know, like alleviated right there. I don't know what it was, but this pretty little Peruvian girl said, have a nice day. And I was like, that's it. I'm welcome. Interesting. That's all it took for you to just feel feel comfortable. Yep. I don't know what it is, but South America has just this soothing presence to me. And the people are what make that. So after Cusco, you went to Machu Picchu, is that correct? Um, so while I was in Cusco, I went to Machu Picchu twice. Okay. So Machu Picchu is, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. And it's located right next to what most people refer to it as Machu Picchu City, uh, but it's actually called Aguas Calientes because there are natural hot springs right outside that little city. You know, Aguas Calientes, hot water. Oh, sure. Um, So we had to take a train ride to Aguas Calientes because you can't get there by car. And then we would stay overnight in a hotel. And then in the morning, you go up to Machu Picchu and you do the hike and you see all the great sights. And then I did that my fourth week into Cusco and I did it again my very last week when I had another friend come to visit me how long of a hike is it it depends what you're doing there are several different places that you can walk around there 
but they have one called um, uh, El Templo del Sol. So like the sun, like so it's called Sun Gate, but it's the Temple of the Sun is what the Spanish name's called. So you walk like probably 35 minutes straight up a hill on these really steep stairs. And then the Incans had built what doesn't exactly look like a gate, but it could have been back in the, their time with depending on what they had around it. It almost perfectly lines up with the sun when it's setting and when it's rising. I bet that's beautiful. Um, it's awesome. And then they also have a the Inca Bridge is what it's called. That's now gated off because people were falling and dying, which is not a great thing. And that's about another 20 minute hike around um, the side of a mountain. You're not hiking a whole lot when you're there. It's more of just a walkthrough. But there are also side attractions that you can go and do a hike on. So is Machu Picchu set up in the mountains? Is that what you said? Yes. Machu Picchu is a city on top of a mountain. Okay. And that was originally an Incan citadel, correct? So that's a fun one. That's what the that's what history tells us, and that's what we thought about traditionally for the longest time. But recently, scientists down in Peru have thought that it was a vacation spot for the Sapa Inca that built it. For so the who? A, this a Sapa Inca, which Sapa in Quechua means head, the head Inca. Okay. Kind of like their king. Yep. If I'm correct, it was the eighth Sapa Inca that built Machu Picchu. It was. Um, I would have to double check on that one. People think now that the Saba Inca had it built so that way he and other higher ranking members of society could go up there and vacation, which is a really weird thought because traditionally you wouldn't think that back in like, say the 13, 1400s that they would be taking vacations at the moment. That's what they were telling us in our classes. No one can be sure if it wasn't a Citadel. It's so long ago. We know that it was used as a citadel at the end of its time because when the Spanish were invading Peru, people fled and Machu Picchu was, you know, the best defense they had or the greatest place they could defend because they had the high ground. It was on top of a mountain. When I mean on top of a mountain, I mean it's a 30-minute bus ride up a winding mountain. That would be a long hike, especially with an army. Yes, yes. I mean, not impossible, but very close to impossible because there was truly one path in and out at the time and it still exists right now called the Inca Trail so if you wanted you could do a seven day hike across I don't know how many miles of Peru but it's the traditional way to get to Machu Picchu is to do the Inca Trail hike and it's seven day hike yes a seven day hike and you're usually staying in a tent you can stop at a place called Rainbow Mountain which I also went to that's towards the start of your hike and on that, they have kind it's not a yurt exactly. As a trap, like as a student, the closest thing I could describe it to without knowing the actual name was kind of like a yurt that you would stay in. And it, you know, it had an actual bed. So the people that had been hiking could take a little bit of more of a rest and actually get a good night's sleep. We should do that. Uh, we should do that seven day hike sometime. I would love that. I, I really want to do that. I knew a guy who actually lived in a yurt. In northern Minnesota, and for people who don't know what a yurt is, it's basically a very structural tent. Is that correct, Justin? Yeah, yep, that's how I would say it. I mean, 
it seems like there's more of like a frame to the tent than just a regular tent. Yeah, and so he was living it, living in it in northern Minnesota where it was like 30 below, and he's trying to keep this heated for his family. That was a little bit of a struggle, but I think in South America, a yurt would be a lot easier. Yeah, it would definitely be easier. Um, Cusco is somewhat cold, especially at night. Obviously, being Minnesotans and you being from Bemidji, you're used to the extreme cold. That's something they don't have there. But I think when I was there, the coldest it got down to at night was about 30 degrees. For South America, when you think about it, that's really cold. Which, it was different, because when I got there, I'm going to be honest, everybody was telling me when I was talking to my advisors while I was in the United States, bring a jacket, bring pants, like, it'll be cold in Cusco. And I was like, oh, no, I'm from Minnesota. I don't need pants or anything. Did you not bring pants? I did. I brought two pairs of pants. Two pairs of pants for three months of Yes, three months of travel. Nice. <laughs> yep, yep. I had two pairs of pants and, like, nine pairs of shorts. Like, I was not thinking about the cold whatsoever. And I got there, and, I mean, obviously, I left in the spring, so I was still kind of used to waking up in the morning and it being, like, 40 degrees in Minnesota. So it wasn't too much of a shock. But I had a few friends from Texas and – Surprised me, one friend from Boston who just couldn't quite keep up with the cold, which surprised me a little bit. But then again, I mean, when you're when you're living in a warmer place or you're used to warmer weather, it's going to be a whole different change for you. So I was always the traditional Minnesotan wearing shorts when it was like 45 degrees walking to class in the morning. Love to see it. Oh, yeah. I got some really weird looks. A lot. Did you stick out? It's hard to know for sure. I know I didn't towards the end of my time in Peru, but I, because I spoke Spanish very well from the very get go, I was being told that like, I, I'm already integrated into society and whatnot. I, when I got into my university and I had to do a written test and I know my written Spanish is not nearly as good as my spoken Spanish. So I tested into like this intermediate category when I got there, but I already had those credits. And I, if I took intermediate Spanish, it would just be a waste of my time. So I went into like what we, what we would call the Dean. And I talked to him and I just asked if I could do a verbal test and then we could work on the written stuff extra outside of class. And, you know, at first the Dean was like, no, that doesn't sound normal. Like we're not going to bend the rules for you. And then I changed over to Spanish and I started talking to him in Spanish. And he was like, oh, you really do know your stuff. Yeah, we can do that. After that, I mean, I never had anyone really question if I was from the United States. I don't know if that is because Cusco is so tourist-driven that they knew, or if it's because they actually couldn't tell. About a week or two after, I was buying clothes from Peru. I was picking up the slang. I had gotten a Peruvian haircut, and then I had my beard shaved by a barber down there. Was that with uh, the straight blade? It was, yes. Aren't you practicing with one of those currently? I am, and I have finally built up the courage to shave my neck with a straight razor. I want you so, to shave my beard sometime. I will definitely do that. I'm not comfortable yet, but I'm going <laughs> to keep working on my neck. Uh, I know Henry has been asking me to do his as well. I think you're going to have to come down here one time when I am full-on ready for it. I'll have a little barber day. 
You're a desirable man, Justin. Hey, I try to be. All right. After Machu Picchu and Cusco, you went to Colombia, correct? Yes. I flew from Cusco to um, El Dorado National Airport, International Airport, sorry, in Bogota. And I met um, my high school best friend, Daniel. Is Colombia, I know it is rumored to be a not very safe place, but I've read that it's getting increasingly safer as the years go on. Absolutely. Um, this is one of the topics that I feel mo- very strongly about because I have been to Colombia now twice. I've spent a total of about seven weeks in Colombia uh, in my life now, and I have never once had a bad encounter. Um, obviously, it's because I've been with people that can keep me safe, but also Colombia has changed a lot, but the, the international viewpoint on Colombia really has not because we still like we still think of Colombia as if the narcos are running the country and that Pablo Escobar is still down here just doing his thing but he's not if you want to look at how much cocaine is produced by each country Colombia is not the number one in South America it's Peru but the only thing we think about from Peru is Machu Picchu and Inca people. Colombia is, is very safe, and I will stand by that forever. Obviously, if you're a tourist, you're going to have a hard time. People are going to try to hassle you. Market owners are still going to try to charge you twice or three times the actual amount. That's going to happen anywhere you go in Latin America because they know they can take advantage of you. My best advice, if you're going to Colombia and you're worried, don't look like a tourist, look like a traveler, which is a different thing. And if you've been outside the country and you've experienced travel, you can you can make a distinction between a traveler and a tourist. What are the main distinctions? I would say that as a tourist, you're out there and you just want to see every little site. You aren't focused on the people, you're focused on where you are. Where on as a traveler, you're focused on that culture. When I was in Bogota, I really did not care what I was seeing. I cared about who I was around. I wanted to put myself around the people that could teach me how they live in Bogota and what they do in their life. That's what I really enjoy about traveling, understanding the different cultures and how they live and why, especially why they live the way that they currently do. Exactly. I think personally, I think that is the best part about traveling is learning a new way of life. But when I was reading up on Colombia this morning, it seemed like it's gotten so much safer within the last 20 years. I read that they were down 92% in kidnappings in the last 20 years. And I think a lot of that is due to a peace treaty that the president of Colombia had signed with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. Yes. Yep. So they, I believe in 2016, a peace treaty was signed between the president and the head of the FARC. Um, and my first time going to Colombia was in 2017. And my last time was 2019. And even between the two times, you could tell that the way people viewed the country is different after that. So why do you think it still gets such a bad rap in America here? I think it's because there are people that just, they don't read up on Colombia they just see what they see on TV and they believe that. 
and there isn't a whole lot of media exposure that's going to tell you differently about Columbia. You need to actually look for it and you need to look at the statistics and talk to people that have been there. And obviously there still are kidnappings. There are still people that are killed. There are people killed in the United States too. It's about where you are. And the FARC made it a lot more dangerous. I'm not going to say they didn't, but they had been being pushed farther and farther away from society the last, I don't know how many years. And with that peace treaty, now Colombian people are that fearful of the FARC. They're very happy with what's going on in their country. They're seeing so many things changing. And Colombia is becoming, I guess I can't call them a world power because they're not big enough for that. But they're becoming a more relevant country in the world. They have a lot more things going on for them. They're exporting a lot more goods. And it seems like people just, they're just happier in Colombia. It's, it's like there's a breath of fresh air that the people of Colombia were recognized for what their president did. I believe he, um, he won a Nobel Peace Prize for that. Peace treaty. Yep. Yep. That's and that's, awesome. yeah, that's what I'm talking about is that I remember the day that that happened because my friend Daniel was just bouncing off the wall excited because I don't think there's ever been a Colombian, let alone someone from the Indian region that has ever won a Nobel Peace Prize. I could be wrong on that one, but I think that's how it sounded when I talked to him about it. People are very excited because for the first time in, oh man, what since the FARC was made, they aren't worried about the kidnappings. They aren't worried about people being held to ransom. They can live their lives and they can start to tell people, hey, come to Colombia. Like, let's show the world who we are. That's awesome that they're feeling some, uh, some national pride about that. That's important for a country. Yes, it absolutely is. Is South America, I suppose the individual countries in South America, are they pretty proud? Do they have a lot of patriotism? So it's a little bit different than here. In the United States, we have patriotism for our country. In South, South America, for the most part, it seems like people are more proud of the city that they're from. Every major city in Colombia, they have a certain term that they call the people that are from there. Like, like in Bogota, you would think in English should be like Bogotan or like some such kind of person. But no, they have a different word. It's called Rolo. Like you live La Vida Rolo. It's their way of life. And they coin it as Rolo because they want to be different and they want to show their, their pride from being from Bogota. Different cities have different words for their own little subculture. And they're very, very proud of that. And I think some of it has to do with just how competitive they are with each other when it comes to sports, especially soccer. The camaraderie between cities is insane. I mean, I've never seen people get so into a debate. Like, you think of our debates here in the United States about, like, different football teams. Down there, it is so different. Every city's got their own team that's competing against other cities in the country. And you could have a cousin from like three hours away and you two are going to get at it every time they're talking about sports. It's, it's like a city pride, I would say. And did you ever go to a soccer game? Or a I football? did. Everyone can get together and love the Colombian national team. Football match? I did. Not in Colombia, but I went in Peru. And that was a very fun one. Um, because it was the two professional teams in Cusco playing each other. Okay. So 
it's it's kind of like when um, the big game in in Spain that they play, and I'm completely drawing a blank um, on like the two professional teams that come. Like I think it's like Real Madrid and like Barcelona. When they play, they have a name for it. They call it the mini version of that in Cusco because like, they've actually had to put a cage around the field because fans were storming the field and like getting into fights over how the game went. Wow. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Um, it was a lot of fun though. And touching back on the patriotism aspect, Cusco carried a very different kind of patriotism. It was very much, I am part of the Inca culture that still lives in the world. And they were very proud that the Inca capital is where they live. They're very proud that they're part of history. And everywhere you go, you see rainbow flags. And my first week, I was like, oh, okay. So they really support like the LGBTQ community because that's <laughs> they're they're that's really woke. <laughs> yeah, I was like, man, these guys are woke. Like they know what's going on, you know. And I was like, I remember saying that to my one of my professors, who I think she spent some time in the United States because she kind of understood a lot of the things I was saying in class, the cultural things that I would bring forth in our conversations. She seemed to be able to understand them and kind of like take that point and teach me what was going on in the country. And I remember being like, oh, Chris, you guys are very accepting of the LGBTQ community here. Like, I'm very proud to be in this city. And she laughed and she said, well, we are. But that's actually the city flag of Cusco. It is a rainbow. That makes so much sense why it would be absolutely everywhere you go. But that was just one of those things. I was like, huh, I really am in a different culture. It's interesting how things get such a strong meaning a rainbow flag here definitely means support for the lgbtq community whereas there you know like you said it's just the city flag but so there was a lot of support for the lgbtq community down there yes from what i saw um now south america is very 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 overwhelmingly catholic but in cusco it's not so much that way so there's less of like a societal view that it's a bad thing and even in that, the entire stance of the places I was at is changing at such a rapid rate. I mean, they're catching up to the world and understanding that it's not something that is, it's not a bad thing. People should be who they are. Uh, and Cusco is very good at that. They also, not that it's any sort of comparison, but they're starting to understand where the world's going. And so they also, I believe they're the number one city in all of South America in terms of being diet friendly, as in like vegetarian options, vegan options, gluten-free options. You said that's Cusco? Diet. Yeah, Cusco. Yep. Okay. Yep. As a city, Cusco is just, they're very accepting of anything and everything, which is pretty nice to see. And I also can see when I was in Colombia, it was changing there as well. Um, the viewpoint is a little different on the LGBT community from what I saw and what I experienced in the country. It seemed that overwhelmingly society there thought that it was a choice, but they didn't, they were not upset by the choice, which is really different than 
anything I've ever experienced because I had a conversation with someone and they were like, oh yeah, it's a choice, but it's an okay choice, which interesting. it really struck me. And I didn't know how to continue the conversation because I don't believe it is a choice. I think it's, you know, people are just born the way they are. And that's great because we shouldn't all be the same. We should have people of all different kinds of, of thought and, way, and walks of life. But the viewpoint there was different and it might be a different viewpoint for just that person. But I had that talk with a few different people and that's what I got. So I'm not quite sure if I was just talking to the same kind of subgroup of thinkers or if it is a bigger thought in the area. Yeah, it, it probably is fairly unfair to define a country and definitely more unfair to define a whole continent based off one one experience one yes. person's experience yeah so i can't say for certain but my personal experience i had a very different uh, a very different personal encounter with that sort of acceptance when i was in bogota in comparison to cusco so then what was your next destination on your trip so or on your starting abroad excuse me so from bogota I went with Daniel to where his family lives in Santana, Boyaca, which is 30 minutes away from the border of the state of Boyaca and the state of Santander. They're right next to each other, super close. I mean, the closest actual city we went to was in Santander. So we spent a lot of time in Santander and uh, Boyaca. Now, when you're talking about a state, that's a state within Colombia, correct? Yes. Yep. So... Colombia is split up into departments, and a department there is like a state. Okay, how many states or departments do they have? I believe it's 13. I'm going to check on that really quick, because I don't want to get it wrong, and I can't name all of them off the top of my head. There are th- yeah, you can, you there can, are you can look at Okay, way 32? more than I thought, yeah. That's a, that's a little higher than 13. <laughs> yeah, it's a little higher than 13. I think Maybe it's, maybe I've only, okay, I've been to 13 then. That's what it is. And how do you pronounce that? Is that Santander? Santander, yeah. Okay, excuse my, excuse my poor pronunciation of that. (laughs) Not a problem. So that's in the mountains, right? Santander is outside of the mountains. But there are parts of the state that do have mountains. Where I was at, we were far enough away that we weren't in the mountains anymore. It's hard to say that for sure, like, a hard-on, because, like, there are cities that are straight up in the mountains that are, like, an hour away from where we were, but where we were, it was just flat as can be. In U.S. and in some really mountainous regions, you have people that just go live in the mountains, and they're never to be heard of again. They just live out their lives there in a small cabin. Do you have anybody in Colombia who would do that? There are so many people that are just self-sustaining farmers that are just doing their own thing. I would imagine it'd be a lot easier to be self-sustaining there as opposed to here. It is. I mean, you could, I went on a lot of, I went on a, a very long horseback ride in my friend's hometown. We, uh, we were like 10, 15 miles outside of his town and we got up to this pretty high point on like a hill or like. I, I wouldn't call it a mountain because it was it was not big enough to be a mountain, but we were right above a valley. And you could look down in, scattered around the valley, you could just see these really small family farms. 
one road in, one road out. Like, these people are just doing their own thing. That's the way of life down there. I mean, it makes them happy. Is it? They're not hurting anybody. So they're just doing their own thing, and no one has a problem with it. Typical, like, to have two children? I Yeah, right around two. Um, if you're in Bogota, it's like one, two. When you're outside of Bogota, you're looking at more like three, four, maybe five. It gets bigger as you get farther into the country, and I'm sure that is kind of how it is still in the United States, too. And A lot of that, you know, would be linked to helping out on the farm or whatever agriculture you have. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Farming is still such a prevalent part of life in Colombia. I think here we're starting to walk away from that in the United States, partially because factory farms are getting so big. The American dream of owning your own land and living off of it and whatnot isn't quite the same as it was before. Whereas in yeah. Colombia, that's still how it is. Yeah, technology is definitely definitely changing that and making it larger farms to take over. Yeah, which is sad in some breath. Are a lot of Colombian families a lot closer than traditional American families? Or, I suppose, United States of American families? In oh, the aspect yeah. where, like, they're still living with... The family is still... very. It, lo- it looks a lot like an American family. You have, like, the parents and the kids in the household. And sometimes you have, like, a grandparent or, like, cousin. It's not common to move far away from your family in Colombia. For the most part, they stick to, like, I believe, is it, is it the nuclear family that's, like, your parents and then your children in the household? It, living out of the same town as, like, your grandparents is not very common. I mean, when I was in Santana with Daniel, every single day, we would go hang out with his aunt and uncle or his first cousins because they live one block away. You go one block to your right and you have his aunt and uncle and four cousins living there one block to your left and it's the same thing you walk two blocks forward straight in front of the house and you're getting to see like another set of aunt and uncles and then you drive five minutes out of town onto a family farm with another set of aunt uncle kids wow that's cool that everyone is stays close yeah it's it seems like the family as a whole is a lot closer and means more in Colombia. And I think that is one of my favorite parts about Colombian culture is that families are extremely close. I mean, I don't know if I've seen a brother and sister with a better relationship than Daniel and his little sister. That's cool. In Peru, you said you were living with, or in the house you were staying with, you were staying with Tanya's family and they were on a compound. Is that fairly common? I have not seen exactly what Tanya and her family have anywhere else. So, no, I don't think it's overly common down of who lives there. And that might help explain and try to give you a more of a mental picture of what's going on there. Yeah. Immediately to your right, you have where Wesley and I stayed, my roommate, for my time in Peru, in a little two-bedroom area. And then you keep walking straight. And right on the ground floor, there's another family living there. And they were really close family friends with Tanya. So it was a mom, her husband, and then I believe it was the mother's mom. So like the grandmother of the little daughter that also lived there. And they lived in a small little like three bedroom, one bath area down there with a dog. 
And then you also had like a laundry area down there that people would hand wash laundry. And then you walk up one flight of stairs and I don't know who lived there. I will be honest. I never went in there. Someone lived there. Up one more <laughs> floor, up one more floor, and that's where Tanya and Sandro, her husband, lived with their two children. So they had um, like was it two or three bedrooms in that, and then a bathroom, a kitchen, a living room, a uh, dining room, and then you go up another floor, and that's where Sandro's sister lived. So I was never up there, but I knew she lived there and she had a dog that would come down and hang out with us every once in a while. And then you go up to the very top floor and that's where Sandro's mom lived. Wait, so how many stories is this building? Four. Okay. So in a way, you could kind of compare it to an apartment, but like each unit was its own floor of the building. When you look at it, it makes a lot of sense, but trying to describe it, it's, it's a little harder because it's not exactly an apartment building and there are so many different things going on in this building. So you walk. Yep. So it is kind of like an apartment building for a family. Yeah. Did you meet any ladies in Colombia or <laughs> Peru? Um, yeah, I, I met a few at the clubs. I know that you're, uh, you're kind of a smooth talker, especially with that accent. <laughs> yeah. So it was my first time out clubbing in Peru as with all my friends and, you know, I was excited because this is my wheelhouse, like drinking, dancing, just living it up. Like You have a very elaborate wheelhouse. <laughs> I do have a very elaborate wheelhouse. But on top of this wheelhouse, the most important part is that I get Spanish music playing. And that's that's where I'm in my game. They finally played a reggaeton song that I knew. And it was criminal. And... I mean, I heard it and I knew, I knew the song word for word at the time. So like, I was just yelling. I was double fisting rum and cokes and I was just having a good time. And I got a tap on my shoulder and I was like, huh, I'm facing all the people I know. And I turn around and it's this very nice looking Peruvian girl. And you know, she like, went, like said something to me and we talked for a few minutes and then I was like, huh, I'm doing great, right? Like, she's flirting. Like, I'm flirting back. This is good. And then she hands me something, and I don't know what it is at first. I take it, and then she kind of, like, giggles and walks away. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So she walks away, and I look at it, and it's a condom. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Okay. That's a weird thing to hand somebody. It is. Right, right. Okay. So, like, 10, 15 minutes later, she comes back to me. And I was like, okay. I must have been doing something right. Like, let's go. Now I remember reading the brand name of the condom. was Piel. I look at her. Her dress says Piel right across the chest. And I was like, ah, you're here giving out free condoms so you can promote your brand. Uh, It was a lot of fun doing this. A lot of fun talking to you. Whole lot of fun. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, let's do this again sometime. I would love that.